Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. As we read some verses this morning from Paul's letter to the young Philippi church, remember that Paul wasn't copying some hallmark card or embroidered pillow exhortation inspiring us to live a joyful, worry-free life and think kind thoughts. No, this was written by a guy in prison with no freedom of movement, not free to do what he wanted to do and see who he wanted to see. Yet he tells them to be like him from the inside out in his attitude and way of being, even with the constraints he was under. Let's read from Philippians 4, verse 4. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you're considerate in all that you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. And don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honourable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. The word of God to us today. I wonder, and you can raise your hand if you do know this person. I wonder if anyone has ever seen this man. Not re- it, it could have been years ago, yeah, yeah. For those listening only, it is a black and white portrait of a small framed, handsome Italian young man. He has dark hair and a dark mustache. It could be Wes Lufrano who was just up here playing guitar. It's not Wes, even though those two probably share some genetic history here. This is a portrait of Pietro Vincent Perugia. That name might not be helpful in placing him either. And what he did that made him famous in his day, you may not even know about. So I wonder instead, have you ever seen this woman? For those listening only and to those here live today, yes, this is the world famous face of Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa painted by the equally famous Leonardo da Vinci in the early 1500s. Leonardo died not long after he completed the Mona Lisa. He had moved to France where art and culture were flourishing like no place else in the world at the time. 
And when he died, as one of the stories is told, he bequeathed the Mona Lisa to the king of France. Perugia apparently did not know this a couple of centuries later. And with a case of early 20th century conspiracy theory, he believed instead that Napoleon had stolen her from his native Italy and that da Vinci must be rolling around in his grave what with this masterpiece on a foreign wall. So the young man devised a plan. You see, he worked at the Louvre. He was a handyman there. And where the Mona Lisa was on display. And he walked by her beguiling smile each and every day in his handsome little museum uniform. So on Monday morning, August 21st, 1911, he came into work as usual, all the employees walking through the same door. He made his way to the Mona Lisa, took her right off the wall, went to a storage room, covered her with his uniform jacket, walked the painting to his nearby apartment, and returned to work before anyone knew that she was gone. For two years, Pietro Vincent Perugia continued to work at the Louvre while enjoying the company of the most iconic Renaissance painting crafted by the greatest artisan in history in the privacy of his one-bedroom apartment. Vincent and Mona Lisa happily together. She may have never been recovered had he kept her to himself. But in 1913, citing both patriotic and financial reasons, he tried to sell her to an Italian museum to bring her home and in the process to get his retirement funded. Of course, he was promptly arrested, but Mona Lisa made a glorious tour of Italy before settling back to her home on the Louvre wall. And as far as Perugia goes, after serving his French prison sentence of only seven months, he too returned to Italy and was given a hero's welcome. In fact, until 1911, only art dealers and aficionados of Renaissance painting paid much attention to the Mona Lisa. And a case can be made that Perugia's theft of her made her into the heroine and the icon that she is today. Still, I have lots of questions. Number one, how could a priceless work of art not be under lock and key at all times? Two, why didn't someone note that a man who stood only five foot three inches tall was carrying away something under a smock that was almost as large as he was? Three, who keeps a picture of the Mona Lisa in his apartment for two years? And what do you do with her when company comes over or the landlord comes to check on the radiator? Four, how? How do you think you would ever get away with something like this unless you had planned to keep the painting hidden, the opposite of the created intent? And finally, why? I mean, sure, you're a flag-waving, patriotic Italian. You need to make some quick cash. But is that it? Is that the only motivation? No. Perugia said that Mona Lisa made him happy. Well, okay then. The search for happiness can lead people to do strange things. Radical things. Even criminal things. Blaise Pascal said the aim of every person is to be happy. Even those persons who take their own lives. It's such a universal desire to have a little joy, to have just a little contentment, 
A light heart and a light mind, happiness. But it can be so universally elusive. This woman will make me happy. This man will make me happy. This surgery will make me happy. This job will make me happy. Having a family will make me happy. Getting away from my family will make me happy. Making more money will make me happy. Having less to worry about will make me happy. On and on it goes. But here it is. Happiness is an inside job. Vincent Perugio was successful in stealing the Mona Lisa not because he secretly broke in. Not because he was a master thief who was so skilled, who knew things that others didn't. He succeeded in stealing the Mona Lisa because he had access. It was an inside job. There was nothing really to figure out. It was simply there for the taking. And so long as he kept her and guarded her within his own world, it was a success. And it might be a clumsy parallel today, but I think happiness just might work the same way. There is no secret to unlock. There is no skill to develop. No elusive mystery to chase. Happiness is already there within us. It's already there within you. It's there for the taking. And if you can't find happiness within yourself, you can't find happiness anywhere in the world. Now don't get me wrong. There are plenty of externals that make life easier and much more pleasant. A nice house, a little money, work that you enjoy, hot water, a comfortable bed, air conditioning, Mobility, the means to travel, coffee, clean drinking water, electricity, nice clothes, access to health care. Stopping to say grace for these things that we more often than not take for granted would make us all more grateful and less fussy for sure. But most people that I know have all of these things. A lot of people I know have all of these things in spades. But that doesn't mean that they are happy. In fact, some of the most unhappy people I have ever met have everything that a person could ever wish for. Everything. And conversely, some of the happiest people I have ever met have virtually nothing. So we know, intuitively maybe, or by experience, or by observation, that happiness is inner work. Happiness is a choice that we make. Happiness is a decision. It's accessing what is already somehow at our disposal. Happiness in any synonym that you want to give to it. Joy, satisfaction, gladness, cheerfulness, contentment. You could list 50 more. It's already yours. And the path to happiness passes through your own heart and mind because happiness is an inside job. Look at the words used by Paul today from Philippians 4. First, there is the content, what it is that we are to be. He uses words like joyful, considerate, peaceful. He uses that repeatedly. Grateful, that we seek truth and honor and rightness what is pure and lovely, admirable, excellent. All of this good stuff. And where is it? 
It's all internal. Be full of joy, he says. It's inside of you. Let peace guard your heart and your mind. It's about fixing your thoughts to all that brings peace and happiness. Fix is such a great word. First in the South. When someone says they're fixing to do something in the South, nothing is getting repaired. Right? It's my wife's favorite Southern phrase. I'm fixing to. She's not going to fix anything. It just means she's getting ready. Or she is ready. We're about to start. Well, Paul doesn't use fix in the Southern sense. And he doesn't use it at all like something is going to be repaired. He uses it as attachment. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. The word here means to meditate. Deep, deep thinking. Quiet your mind. Direct your thoughts in healthy, helpful, loving ways. Go deep within and stick your mind to all that is good, all that is internally fed by the Spirit. We might say it like this, Velcro your wandering thoughts to what is peaceful and whole. The word fix here can also mean to calculate. The Greeks use this exact word as a mathematical term. Those same pesky Greeks who ruined many of our lives with trigonometry. Do your figuring. Do you remember when you were in school and you were assigned some complex algebraic equation and it wasn't 2 plus 2? Some long godless thing that you've never had to access ever again in your life? Or maybe it was a word problem. I hated word problems. If Joey has three donuts and Lisa has two donuts, how many joints did they smoke? I don't know. You've got to work all these steps out in your mind. You calculate. You concentrate. And you do that here, as Paul says, on what really matters. On truth, not conspiracy. On the honorable, not the crooked and the distasteful. On what is right, not what is wrong. On the pure, not the tarnished. On what is lovely, not what is ugly. On what can be admired, not those things that are easy to loathe. Center yourself on what is excellent and worthy. And the result will be more excellent and more worthy thinking. And a more excellent way of living. Now, to do all of this, you've got you to turn down the noise. Man, there's a lot of noise in our world. You have to get away from all that is so wearisome and hideous. Not like some ostrich in the sand where you're ignoring what's going on in the world. But you have to know that your soul has to be protected. Because if you don't protect your inner world, the outer world will overrun it. And any sense of peace or happiness will become impossible. Absolutely impossible. I was reading a story sometime back some spy thriller. And one of the characters in the story 
was poisoned. And he survives because they quickly get him to the emergency room where he is treated with something called activated charcoal. Now, for some reason, and this is how my mind works, I read that in the story and I thought, huh, activated charcoal. I've heard of that, but how does it really work? And I don't know if you're like this, but if you have, I should stop reading on a Kindle because I just close the book and go to the Google machine and figure out what activated charcoal really is. And this is what I learned. This little stuff right here, activated charcoal, is used to filter a lot of things. The air, water, the human body in the event of poisoning. It's used as a supplement by some people. Back in the day, if someone was poisoned or they overdosed, the solution was to pump their stomach. Nasty. Today, the treatment of choice is activated charcoal. Now, the manufacturers of this stuff take regular charcoal, just burned wood or sawdust, and they put it into an airless tank, and they crank up the temperature to more than 1,000 degrees. And then they add nitrogen and a few more things to it, and they hit it again with heat over 2,000 degrees. This isn't a pizza oven. This is the temperature of lava, flowing, melted rock. And this makes the charcoal incredibly porous. It has all these microscopic holes in it. It looks something like a hardened sponge. And that's how it works. Just like a sponge. Activated charcoal pulls out all the toxins. Either out of the air or out of the water. Or from within a person. Into itself by adhesion. By fixing. By sticking to it. Poison sticks to the charcoal. Activated charcoal is so porous and so sticky that one teaspoon of this stuff right here has the same surface area as a football field. So we're in a building today that is 6,000 square feet. It would take 10 footprints of this building to match the same surface area of one teaspoon of activated charcoal. That's what makes it so powerful. It's how little charcoal filters can clean the air in your home so well and for so long. It's how charcoal filters in that water bottle that you take backpacking with you or camping can purify so much water. It's because the surface area is just all the poison and all the toxicity is just sticking to it and it's absorbing it into itself and protecting you. And I think that that's how the inside job of happiness works too. It's how inner peace is maintained. When we access the joy within us, when we fix our thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable, when we think about those things that are excellent and worthy of praise, what we fix sticks. When we are, then we are able to absorb the poison that is quite literally in the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the images that we see, the conversations that we hear, the headlines that we read. We should actively work to create a world, absolutely, that is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and worthy of praise. No doubt about it. But that work in the world begins in the world that is inside of us. Because if we can't do that work for ourselves, how could we ever possibly think 
that we're going to help anybody else. We must develop a greater capacity to absorb and to neutralize the toxicity that surrounds us. We may not be able to do much about the poison around us, but we do not have to succumb to the poison within us. Lasting happiness, lasting joy, peace and persistence are possible, but it is an inside job. You already have what you need. Fix it and stick to it. Maintain it and you just might be able to withstand the contamination of the world in which we live. There's an old Buddhist story about a beggar sitting on the side of the road. And he just sits there for years asking people for money. One day a man walks by and the beggar says to him, could you spare some change? And the man says, there's nothing that I have to give you. But you're sitting there on on that box. You've got something already. What's in that box? And the old beggar says, I don't know. This box has been here for as long as I can remember. I just sit on this box. And the guy says, well, have you ever looked inside that box? And the uh, beggar's getting a little irate about that. He says, what's the use of looking inside this box? Well, let's kick it over and see what happens. Okay, whatever. He kicks the box over. And it's full of coins and gold and silver. And he'd been sitting on this box the entire time. And the Buddhists tell that story as a way of saying, kick around inside your own heart. Look what the universe, what God has already gifted you with. It's there within you if you will access it. The very gift of God, the joy, the peace of God. Now be sure that it's work. It's inner work. It's quiet work. The work of stillness. I'll return to Blaise Pascal, another one-liner from him. He said this, All the miseries of the human person come from the fact that no one can sit still for one hour. I'll do one better. How about 15 minutes? Be still for 15 minutes. Turn off the television. Now, if you live in a household where the TV is always on, start right there. Turn that box off on occasion. Silence the notifications on your little watch. Put the phone on the charger. No one is so important. No work is so urgent that you can't find a few minutes of quiet. In fact, I would say if your work is important and there is weight and urgency to what you do, then it's all the more important that you find some stillness. We even call it what it is. When you get so frustrated and you just want to get outside and get away from all the noise, what do you say? I need some peace and quiet. We even say it. And it's not just for our ears. It's for our hearts. It's for our minds. It's for our souls. Now, I want you to know that this talk today is not spoken in a vacuum. I see the war, the bloodshed, That is daily on our digital screens. I am acutely aware that. All that we see and hear and experience. Is more than we can bear. 
We were not built to absorb 24 hour a day, seven day a week, 365 day a year, bad news. We were not built to absorb that. I'll say it again. We were not built to withstand that. It is more than any of us can take. And just as I was putting the finishing touches on this little sermon yesterday, a dear friend called me with the tragic news that that his adult son had taken his own life. With this sermon laying on my desk, and as long as I live, if I live to be a hundred, I'll never forget the pain in that man's voice. The deep, deep woundedness all the way to his soul that he will never fully recover from in this lifetime. And so, I've spent the last 18 hours thinking about how small, how powerless, how useless, maybe how insulting these words might sound to him or to anyone in so much pain. Having no idea that when I chose Pascal's words in my introduction days ago, that those words would become immediately self-evident. The aim of every person is to be happy, even those persons who take their own lives. I chose to speak these words anyway. Not because it was expected. Not because it's, somebody, it's, su- it's Sunday and somebody has to say something. And it's not because it was too late to say something different. I chose to speak these words because they remain true. I spoke these words today because this is the world we live in and there is no other. If there was, I would load us all up in a ship and take us there. And while this world often produces more questions than answers, more suffering than healing, more chaos than order, more injustice than resolution, more obscenity than beauty, and more confusion than certainty, there is a peace that can still surpass all human understanding. And that peace is the gift of God. It is within us. It is ours to discover and to practice. And I wouldn't be standing here saying this today if I did not believe that this is the only thing I know that can move us forward. Is a peace that comes to us, planted deep within us, from God Himself.